Please join me now in prayer. O Lord, by remaining faithful till death, you show us the road to greater love. O Lord, by taking the burden of sin upon yourself, you reveal to us the way of true servanthood. O Lord, by praying for those who crucified you, you lead us to forgive without counting the cost. O Lord, your word is near. May it live within us and protect us always. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A reading from the John's Gospel, chapter 15, from verse 12. The Gospel of the Lord. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for everything that I learn from my father I have made known to you. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. Jerry was a freak. Shane Wheeler tells the story in his book, The Briar Patch Gospel. Jerry was a freak. Then again, we were in seventh grade and nobody got by unscathed. For most of us, the saving grace that rescued us from the universal prejudice and cruelty of middle school was finding someone to look down on who was more awkward, more uncoordinated, more shunned and by the opposite sex than we were. In my school, that someone was Jerry. He was the unchallenged low man on the totem pole, the pubescent pariah, and everybody knew it. Even he knew it. I wasn't popular or cool or athletic, but at least I wasn't Jerry. One of Jerry's legs was significantly shorter than the other, so he didn't walk, he waddled. He wore one of those shoes with a four-inch sole. Kids joked that it made him look like Frankenstein's monster, tottering and lumbering through the halls. But the worst part was the smell. In all my 12 years on the planet, I had never whiffed anything like it, And I was convinced that prolonged exposure would shut down my internal organs. Others must have shared my concern because when Jerry passed us in the halls, it was as if he was surrounded by a repellent magnetic field. Nobody would get within six feet. He was like Moses parting the Red Sea, only this sea was cruel and mocking and unforgiving. One day, I was in the restroom when Jerry came in. The other boys quickly made for the exit, but I was not so lucky as I was otherwise occupied and unable to retreat. In desperation, I drew in all the fresh oxygen left in the room, wondering which would go first, my liver, kidneys, spleen. What does that do anyway? Can a foul stench cause cancer? Would the air in my lungs be enough to sustain me until I couldn't flee? I wasn't sure, but I had to try. I stood holding my breath and cursing myself for having had that extra carton of milk at lunch. And that's when I saw it. 
I noticed that Jerry hadn't approached the urinal in the customary way. He was standing a little sideways, and he had unbuttoned his shirt from the bottom. What is he doing? In my mind, I was screaming, Don't look! Don't look! But curiosity got the best of me, and I violated lavatory protocol, glancing quickly in Jerry's direction in an effort to figure out his odd posture. Jerry had a catheter bag. Of course, I didn't know what that was at the time. All I knew was that he had a bag full of urine attached to his waist and hidden under his ill-fitting clothing. It looked a lot like one of those bags they use when you're donating blood, only not quite as big, and he was dumping it. That explained the smell. The sad part was that it wasn't even his fault, yet the unfortunate and unavoidable aroma made Jerry an outcast in an already alien, unrelenting, and callous middle school universe. Still holding my breath as if my life depended on it, I wondered for the first time how it must feel to be him, to have literally no friends, to sit alone at lunch every day, to have no one get within six feet at any time. It must be terrible. We were cruel, and all because he looked and smelled different from the rest of us. What's it like when you don't have a friend in the world? Some of you know what that's like. Some of you read Jerry's story and it sounds painfully familiar. It can be crippling. It can be dehumanizing. We're going to look at friendship. A specific friendship that's recorded for us in the Christian scriptures. And ask, what is Christian friendship? And how is it different from the way the world does friendship? One time when I preached on this topic, an elderly man, no longer with us, approached me after the service, and he had teared up, and he told me, Greg, the only thing I could think of through that entire sermon was all the friends that I've lost. It's a hard subject, but it's also a beautiful subject when we see the beauty of what Christian friendship can be. So we're going to look at an account of of King Saul and his son Jonathan, the crown prince and heir to the throne, and Jonathan's young friend David, whom God was raising up instead of Jonathan to be the next king over Israel. I'm going to read from 1 Samuel, selections from chapter 18, 19, and 20. If you can follow along, this is the word of the Lord recorded in 1 Samuel. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. And from that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return home to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow, and his belt. And continuing in chapter 19, Saul told his son Jonathan and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had taken a great liking to David and warned him, My father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I'll go out and stand with my father in the field where you are, and I'll speak to him about you, and I'll tell you what I find out. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father. And he said to him, Let not the king do wrong to his servant David. He has not wronged you, and what he's done has benefited you greatly. He took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. 
The Lord won a great victory for all Israel, and you saw it and you were glad. Why then would you go and do wrong to an innocent man like David by killing him for no reason? And Saul listened to Jonathan and took this oath. As surely as the Lord lives, David will not be put to death. Continuing in chapter 20. So David hid in a field. And when the new moon feast came, the king sat down to eat. He sat in his customary place by the wall opposite Jonathan. And Abner sat next to Saul. But David's place was empty. And Saul said nothing that day, for he thought something must have happened to David to make him ceremonially unclean. Surely he's unclean. But the next day, the second day of the month, David's place was empty again. And then Saul said to his son, Jonathan, Why hasn't the son of Jesse come to the meal either yesterday or today? And Jonathan answered, David earnestly asked me for permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go because our family is observing a sacrifice in the town and my brother has ordered me to be there. If I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away to see my brothers. And that is why he has not come to the king's table. Saul's anger flared up at Jonathan and he said to him, You son of a perverse and rebellious woman, don't I know that you have sided with the son of Jesse to your own shame and the shame of the mother who bore you? As long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now send someone to bring him to me, for he must die. Why should he be put to death? What has he done? Jonathan asked his father. But Saul hurled his spear at him to kill him. And then Jonathan knew that his father intended to kill David. After the boy had gone, this is further down. After the boy had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times with his face to the ground. Then they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and my descendants forever. Then David left, and Jonathan went back to the town. What we see here is that Christian friendship Biblical friendship is incredibly powerful. This three chapters, 18, 19, 20, the account of David and Jonathan is bracketed at either end, at the very beginning and at the very end, with a comment about this loyal, committed, vowed friendship that they had. Uh, notice the brackets. The, the, the whole passage begins at the beginning of chapter 18. It says, After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David. And he loved him as himself, this tightness, togetherness. From that day, Saul kept David with him. He didn't let him return home to his family. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off his robe and put it on David, same with his tunic, and then his sword, and then his belt. This is a a committed, loyal friendship. And then at the very end of chapter 20, at the end of the passage, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord, saying the Lord is witness between us and our descendants forever. This, this, this whole section is, is about David's weakness uh, being hunted down, stalked, 
uh, by, by King Saul. All the powers of the world opposed to him. His life is, is very much uh, in the dock. He has all the decks stacked against him. He's in constant danger. There's no human way that he can get out of this. The king wants him dead. The king's army wants him dead. Everybody is trying to destroy his life. And yet bracketing that is the one thing that changes the entire ballgame. Because bracketing all of that insecurity and vulnerability and threat of death is a friendship stated at the beginning and stated at the end. The literary structure is saying that friendship has the power to neutralize the evil and poison and toxicity in which we live and move and breathe 24-7. Maybe your king isn't trying to kill you. Maybe your boss isn't trying to fire you. But you are going to face evil. You're going to face suffering and hardship. It's going to be in your health. It's going to be in your career. It's going to be in your marriage and your family. It's going to be your struggle to walk faithfully with God. It's going to involve your children. It's going to involve your car. Whatever you are, you are going to face hardship and suffering and the evil of this world. And friendship, friends, is the thing that God is saying has the power to neutralize it. Kids, Who on the playground is going to come to your defense when kids start picking on you? Adults, when your marriage is in its worst days and you and and your spouse, you're not even talking to each other anymore. Who do you want your spouse talking to about the problems with their marriage? Do you want him talking to his intern? Do you want him talking to a lady he meets at a bar who's just so happy she got out of her marriage last month? Or do you want him talking to a Christian friend who's going to call him to the carpet where he's wrong, weep with him where he's been hurt, and send him back home to you with grace and the gospel and Christian wisdom. Friends, Christian friendship has an incredible power in the face of evil. In his book, The Law of Happiness, Henry Cloud talks about a scientific experiment on friendship. He writes this, he says, One of my favorite studies was done years ago with monkeys. Measuring the effects of relationships on cortisol levels in the brain. Cortisol is a a hormone associated with high levels of, of stress. And in this particular experiment, a monkey was put in a cage and exposed to a high level of psychological stress. We've got a picture of that. It included loud noises, flashing lights, and they pretty much scared this monkey half to death. And, and when the monkey was totally terrified, scientists then took a baseline reading of its cortisol levels uh, so that they could then uh, make comparison later on. And then the researchers introduced one variable, one change to the experiment. They opened the door and they put in a buddy, another monkey in the cage with him, and that was it. They exposed the monkeys to the same loud noises, the same flashing lights, and took another measure of the stress hormones, and you can see the result. The level of stress hormones in the brain had dropped dramatically. The only difference wasn't what was going on around you. It's not that your circumstances changed, it's that you had a friend. And it changes everything. Christianity, that's good. Um, Christianity teaches that, that friendship has its origins in eternity. Relationship, companionship, uh, a community is grounded in the Godhead. Before there was a creation, before there was space or time, outside of space and time, God spoke and said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Not, not just two, but three persons eternally in relationship with one another as a single God. Uh, you know, 
at the very beginning, Adam was created, and, and the first thing condemned is his being alone. And God says, it's before even sin had entered the world, God said something was bad. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone, so I will make a companion. Throughout Scripture, we see friendship and community and relationship is something that's, that's so core to, to who we are and what it means to be a human being. It's something Christians throughout history have, have pointed to the unique power of the relationship among friends. Uh, Thomas Aquinas said this, a uh, medieval theologian, he said, there is nothing on this earth more to be prized than true friendship. How would we answer that today? There's nothing to be there's nothing on this earth more to be prized than marriage, family, a good job, success in life, at least you got your health, friendship. Friendship. C.S. Lewis in his Four Loves writes, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all the loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world in comparison ignores it. It's something quite marginal. Not a main course in life's banquet, but a diversion, something that fills up the chinks in one's time. How has this come about? He concludes, the first and most obvious answer is that few value it because few experience it. We miss out on friendship for lots of reasons. We have other priorities. We're too busy looking for that perfect someone, that special someone that's going to lighten us up, that we forget about all the special someones that God has surrounded us with, and so we don't invest in those relationships over years and over decades. We're too busy to invest in a friend. We lack models in our parents' generation where... You know, often the ideal was of the loner who doesn't need anybody, the lone ranger who's strong and quiet. And then we invest in friends and they move away. I mean, welcome to St. Louis. It's a very transient place. Uh, How many friendships have I developed to see them somewhere else in the country? Um, It's unlike most people in, in history, it's actually really easy for us today to separate from those around us. And it can be heartbreaking it's, it's very tempting to just walk away and say, no more, I'll never develop another friendship because I'm sick of losing them. And yet no amount of isolation, no amount of money, no amount of worldly success or personal comfort is ever going to fill the God-designed need for friends. Uh, might have caught the story, uh, shared it a few years back, of, uh, of two boys. We've got a photo here. Um, uh, on the left is eight-year-old Brandon Gandy of Lambertville, Michigan. And little Braden, his, uh, 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 the younger one, has cerebral palsy, a uh, congenital disorder that means, in his case, he actually walks with a swagger and only then with the assistance of a walker. And so it means for him that he can't use playground equipment at most schools and in most parks because they don't have ramps. Getting down from a sidewalk can be very challenging and dangerous because of the lack of, of curb cuts or because drivers insensitively block, uh, park in front of the curb cut so that it becomes useless to someone in a walker. Uh, It means having a hard time when you've got to use the restroom and the only one is up a flight of stairs. On the right is Braden's brother, Hunter, who's 15. Hunter sought to raise awareness about all the little things that we can do to make life easier for guys like his brother, Braden. Uh, And so um, Hunter picked up Braden at school one Friday, um, literally, like that, picked him up, at school, he went to Lambert Elementary, lifted his little brother up off the ground, and threw him onto his back. And Hunter then carried Braden, and he kept walking, and he kept walking. He had physical therapists set up in advance every three miles so that they could stretch their muscles. 
the following Sunday, they arrived at the University of Michigan's Pediatric Rehabilitation Center in Ann Arbor. Hunter had carried Braden 57 miles across the state so that people would recognize the challenges that his little brother has growing up with cerebral palsy. That's more than a biological sibling, friends. That is what friendship looks like, carrying the burdens of your friends. Carrying your friends. It's a bond. It's a commitment. It's love. And for those who experience it, friendship is incredibly powerful. Why is it powerful? Well, it's powerful because Christian friendship uh, has a covenantal component to it. You know, look at the commitment between David and Jonathan here. Uh, You know, they even took vows of loyalty to one another. You know, when we think of vows, we think of marital vows. Uh, but, or, or maybe the oath of office when elected. And yet most of the vows in the Bible are actually vows between men, uh, sometimes even between countries, uh, with committed relationships of, of, of love and loyalty. Uh, we're called to love everybody. But the Bible calls a friend something more. Covenantal friendship is all about loyalty. It's all about love. Look, look at Jonathan's love for his best friend, David. He feels fondness for David. Chapter 19, verse 20. Fondness, to feel fond of someone, is an emotion. It's an attraction, not romantic or sexual in nature, but it involves feeling for someone. I really love this guy. You know, as as men, our insecurity can keep us from experiencing the amazing joys of of friendship because we're afraid to get too close to to our brothers. Uh, You know, you should have people in your life that you genuinely feel for. Friends that you want to be around, that you want to talk to. You can't wait to see their face. You want to give them a big hug. You want to spend time with them. You enjoy them. Uh, Jonathan feels fond of David. And he comes to David's defense when David is being attacked. He even goes to war against his own dad. He provides refuge for his friend. He protects his friend. He gets angry on behalf of his friend. He's emotionally enmeshed with David. He weeps over David. Even as David weeps, uh, he gives David his throne. Quite literally, the crown prince is handing over his throne to his best friend because he believes that God is calling and raising up his best friend for that role. And he's willing to tank his career fully, finally, and forever for his friend David. Uh, This is a non-erotic, covenanted, lifetime commitment with vows. Saul is saying, as long as David lives, you're a threat to the kingdom. And Jonathan says, I don't care about a kingdom. He's my friend. That's higher priority. There's honesty between them. They don't need to pretend. They don't need to project royal power. They can let their guard down. You know, in a covenant, you're bound to one another, for better or worse, for richer or for poorer. Um, Think about this in a military context. Uh, What do soldiers fight for? Do they fight for their country? Do they fight for principles of liberty? Do they fight for freedom, for the army, for the flag? No. I'll show you what soldiers uh, 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 fight for. It's this. They fight for one another. Soldiers don't fight for causes or for countries. They fight for the guy next to them. We're all going to make it out together or none of us are going to make it out at all. Every last man. Band of brothers. A friend is somebody who always takes your call. A friend is somebody who always calls you back. They're there when they say they will be. They don't do a cost-benefit analysis on you whenever they find out you've got a need. A friend helps you move your washer or dryer on a Saturday without complaining too much. Uh, you know, 
A friend is somebody who defends you when you're not there to defend yourself. A friend is somebody who's not going to let your name be tarnished, misrepresented, characterized, or slandered. They will fight for you. Because that's what Christian friendship is. They're going to cry when you're hurting, as we see uh, uh, David and Jonathan weeping for one another. Uh, Your friend is going to put their name and honor on the line for your sake. They're going to get angry when you're wronged. They're going to know when your plane is landing. They're going to check in when you're sick. They're going to ask you difficult questions. A friend will challenge you when you're wrong. Uh, the Bible says the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Uh, your friend doesn't gonna, isn't going to let you walk off a cliff and tank your, your walk with God. They're going to come to your defense and help you and call you out when needed. A friend is, is willing to get their life entangled with your life. They, they're going to take you to dinner on the day you lose your job. They're going to think twice about taking a job in another city because they don't want to lose your friendship. A friend is willing to diminish so that you can shine. And if you, you don't have a category for this, then it may be that you haven't really experienced the beauty and the depth of Christian friendship. Proverbs 18 A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. It's distinguishing real biblical friendship from Facebook friendship. You can have many companions. You can have 5,000 followers on Facebook who all like all your posts. That doesn't mean they're your friends. You need friends who's going to stick with you. St. Ambrose in the 4th century said it this way. He said, For a friend is the sharer of your soul. To your friend's spirit, you join and attach your own spirit and you so mingle the two that you would like for your two spirits to join and become one. Why are we so threatened when Christians in history talk about friendship? It's beautiful. And it isn't something you can do with very many people. Biblical friendship is not exclusive, but biblical friendship is committed and that means you don't have a whole lot of them. But I pray that God gives you a handful. This covenantal model of friendship is the opposite of the culture's consumer vendor way of doing friendship. Um, you, know, you, you know what this is like. You have a relationship with someone uh, so long as they're providing a service that you want at a price you're willing to pay. Uh, you go to Schnucks. You have a relationship with Schnucks. They, they, they're a vendor. They provide you your groceries. And you're going to keep going to Schnucks as long as they're providing a product you want at a price you're willing to pay. But if they change their product or they raise their prices, you're going to Aldi's. Um, you know what that's like, you know. Uh, you have all these vendors in your life. You have vendors who do your dry cleaning, vendors who provide veterinary care for your pets. You have vendors to change your oil, vendors to provide you with gasoline, vendors to provide you with groceries, vendors to do your dental work. Do you have a relationship with all of them? Yes, you do. Does it maybe have some trappings of friendship? Well, it can. I remember, you know, I I used to be a financial aid administrator at Covenant Seminary back in the the beginning of the century. And... uh, 2000 to 2003, and there was a lady, uh, a Commerce Bank rep, because Commerce Bank did a bunch of our student loans, and, and, and so they, she was really nice to us. She took us out to lunch. She bought us big tubs of popcorn. I remember at one point she got me a, a wooden, wood-handled cheese slicer that said Commerce Bank on it. Um, now, does that have the trappings of friendship? Yes. What was her name? I have no idea. Because it was not a friendship, it was a vendor relationship. 
the connection was sustained so long as she was providing a product I wanted at a price I was willing to pay. So you got a drinking buddy. And they decide they they need to give up alcohol. They're starting to have problems with their liver, with their health. They think they might have become addicted. So do you still see them? If if they're still going out with you, if you're still going out with them uh, all the time for coffee, that's because they're a friend. But if you no longer hang out with them because they're not drinking anymore, then they were your vendor. Vendor to provide temporary companionship while drinking. Uh, How many real friendships do you have? What about your relationship with your spouse? Spouse, Is that a vendor? Or is it a friendship? Is it committed? Is it loyal? What about your friends? What about your church? Are you using them as a vendor to meet your needs so long as it's a price you're willing to pay? Or is it a covenantal relationship where you have skin in the game and you are committed so long as they're not running away, you are committed to being right there with them? This is not something new. I'm not making this up, you know. Um, in, the 11, uh, uh, in the 12th century, uh, Elred of, of Raveau uh, wrote about this. Um, he's a 12th century English-Scottish Cistercian. We have a, a, it's not really a photo, but we have a pic of him. They didn't have photographs, but that's as good as we can get. Um, that's what somebody said he looked like, exactly. <laughs> um, this Cistercian abbot from, Frexham, from um, Hexham in Northumbria uh, was uh, formerly a steward of the King of Scotland and a member of the noble class, and he examined friendship from a religious standpoint. He, he, contracts, uh, he contrasts spiritual friendships with worldly friendships. He says worldly friendships are, are counterfeits of true friendship because they are friendship as a trade, he says. They are a vendor relationship. And, uh, uh, for, and they, we trade them for what's temporarily useful to us. Worldly friendship he says, will never last because the love of such a man is acquired at a small price. And so their friendship disappears, he says, at the slightest offense or trouble. Spiritual or Christ-centered friendship, he says, is, quote, what one should or should not do for a friend. He postulates that friends will give their lives for each other because they esteem each other higher than themselves. The abbot explains that friendship contains elements of love and affection and security and happiness. He says this, he says, once admitted, he should be so born with, that is your friend, once admitted into your friendship, He should be so born with, so treated, so deferred to, that as long as he does not withdraw irrevocably from the established foundation, he is yours and you are his in body as well as in spirit, not sexually, guys, so that there will be no division of minds or of affections or of wills or of judgments. No division. Same body, same mind, right there together, totally committed to each other. He says this, here we are, you and I, and I hope that Christ makes a third with us. No one can interrupt us now. No one can spoil our friendly conversation. No one's voice or noise will break in upon this pleasant solitude of ours. So come now, dearest friend, reveal your heart and speak your mind. You have a friendly audience. Say whatever you wish and let us not be ungrateful for this time or for our opportunity and leisure. And such a commitment grows over time. You know, 
it started with Jonathan and David, with Jonathan watching David slay Goliath. And he admires this young man's faith, his confidence in the power of God, and his skill as, as a young warrior. It's something they have in common. They're both warriors. They're both soldiers. They both chop people's heads off, you know. And he's admiring his faith. And by the time you get to the end of the passage, they're literally kissing each other. Um, social convention. Um, I don't want to kiss any of my friends. But it's our equivalent of, of a bear hug, of holding each other, loving each other. Um, friendship is a lot like a bridge, somebody once told me. It begins, we got some photos here. Friendship begins sort of like a little rickety rope bridge when you're a new friend. Um, you're not hanging out all the time. You don't really know. You haven't been tested very much. And so you can't carry a whole lot over that kind of friendship. But over time, as you go through some battles together and you pray together and you get to know each other and you start speaking into each other's life, it becomes more of a wooden bridge. Uh, You can carry a whole lot more over that kind of friendship. And then over time, through the years, it becomes more of a covered bridge. Uh, And then you can carry even more. And, and, And after years or even decades, it becomes a big metal bridge. And eventually, uh, Late into life, after decades and decades of love and loyalty and calling each other out and being each other's friend, it becomes a big table-stayed bridge. Um, that's a spiritual friendship. That is Christian friendship over decades. I've had the privilege, friends, of, of, of having uh, drinks with the same friend every Thursday night for the last 15 years. I've been able to have coffee with a friend, an elder, uh, most Thursday mornings at, 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 at Caldi's. Uh, he gets my covenant eyes, holds me accountable. We pray for each other. 17 years now, um, one family in the church moved here to be involved in my life and ministry 16 years ago, and I've been in their house the, this whole time. Friendship is so precious, friends. I would do anything for my friends. And if I can, can appeal to you, prioritize this. Don't, don't let the busyness of life crowd it out because there are brothers who want to help you walk with God in purpose for their lives. Brothers and sisters who will be at your side for decades. In a sermon titled Spiritual Friendship in 1998, Tim Keller said this. He said, spiritual friendship is eagerly helping one another know and serve and love and resemble God in deeper and deeper ways. Proverbs 18 says, a man of many companions comes to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Proverbs 17, a friend loves at all times. Proverbs 27, the wounds of a friend can be trusted. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him up. Christian friendship is incredibly powerful. It's incredibly powerful because it is covenantal. It is committed. It is invested long term. And that commitment If you've never had that, it can sound like a terrifying risk. You know, if you've never been across even a rope bridge, it looks like a really scary thing. How can you take that risk? The only way I know to take that risk is because there is another friend in the passage. There is another friend in the Bible. There is another friend right here, right now, who is a friend of David and a friend of Jonathan and a friend of mine and a friend of yours if you have Jesus. Because this story that we've read is about a king and his son and the son gave up the throne so that another could live. Jonathan would ultimately be killed in battle as as the price of his loyalty to his friend. 
And all of this is pointing beyond Jonathan, pointing to the one whose rule was secured and prefigured in this very passage. Because without Jonathan's friendship, David would have died. Without Jonathan's friendship, David would not have had sons. Without Jonathan's friendship, covenanted, spiritual, God-centered, friendship, loyalty, and intervention, there would never have been a son of David on the throne. There would never have been the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus would have never come to earth had it not been for the friendship that Jonathan had here. His death was purchasing all of that for us and for David and for Jonathan and for all who have come afterwards. That, this is a passage bracketed by their faith in God and their commitment to one another. Exodus 33. The Lord spoke to Moses as a man speaks with his friend. 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The Lord was a friend to Abraham. Friends, there is a friend who is closer than a brother. His name is Jesus, the true king, the true son of David. And if you are a Christian, he has entered into covenant with you. He has bound himself by thou to you. And this means your best friend Jesus feels fondness for you. He is not ashamed to call you his brother. He feels for you. He comes to your defense when you're under attack. He provides a refuge for you in the, in the wake of destruction. He is emotionally enmeshed with you and weeps for you. He gives up his throne for you. He did that. This is a covenanted lifetime commitment with vows, not your vows to him, but his vows to you. He is bound to you, richer or poorer, better or for worse. It's the only platform on which I think you can really open up to risk true friendship. You can risk getting your heart broken is knowing that you have a friend who's never going to leave you, who's never going to forsake you, who laid down his life for you and who loves you so completely. A son of David repaid the debt owed to Jonathan for Jonathan and for David and for you and for me and for a kid with problems named Jerry. In Gethsemane, God the Father tells Jesus, yes, you can have all of them. You can have your brothers and sisters. You can hold on to them for eternity, but you're going to have to pay hell for it. And Jesus says, okay, give me hell. And that's what he experienced the rejection of his father already experienced in Gethsemane when he's crying out to God and for the first time in his life does not hear anything in answer. And he took that to the cross. Jesus said in John 15, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I no longer call you servants. A servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, Jesus says, I have called you my friends. Jesus, the best friend, an eternal friend, a covenanted friend forever. A number of years back, um, some interesting turn of events happened at the Whithaven Air Show in Cumbria in northern England. Uh, Mike French and, and Wayne Shorthouse went for a jump in the air show. We got a photo of that. Um, it's kind of a terrifying thing, lunging yourself out of an airplane uh, at like 30,000 feet, knowing that gravity doesn't slow down. But you've got this thing strapped to your back. It's called a parachute. And uh, when things work uh, properly, um, it's, it's really beautiful. Um, they were doing a stack maneuver, and the worst nightmare of any professional parachutist 
is what happened. Mike pulled the cord. He was the first one out. He pulled his cord. His parachute did not deploy. He pulled it, and it remained tangled up above him, uninflated. And so he was falling faster and faster toward the ground, watching as those fields got larger and larger. At this point, he knew that he was facing death, thousands of feet below, but just seconds below. Freaking out, spectators could see his arms and legs flailing up in the sky as his body accelerated toward the earth. He was watching his life pass through his mind. He knew death was imminent. It was all over. Thinking of his spouse, thinking of his kids. He, and then suddenly he felt his shoulders abruptly jerk upward. His friend Wayne had been right behind him and had waited to inflate his own parachute as he slowly wound his legs around the ropes of Mike's uninflated parachute. He became entangled with his friend, and then he pulled his own cord. Some would call it a a foolish attempt. These parachutes were not made to carry double the load, and they had waited perilously late to inflate. Wayne was risking his own death in order to try to save his friend. Uh, Even then... The hard fact was that they were falling too fast and they were not likely to make it. So they maneuvered the parachute as best they could, aiming for the harbor, aiming for a possible water landing. Uh, We've got another picture there. They hit the water at 15, 20, 25 miles per hour. Spectators gathered by the shore and saw their bodies plunge fast into the water. And then there was nothing. There was no sign of them. What seemed like an eternity passed. And then, as they watched, as they waited in the silence that was deafening, they saw something start to break the surface of the water. And out from below popped Wayne Shorthouse and Mike French, tangled together in a mess of nylon and ropes. We've got another pick here. Mike's the white guy. Wayne is his friend who risked his life to save him. Friend, that's a friend. Two lives tangled together in an unbreakable knot. Either we're both going to live through this or we're both going to die, but we're going to do it together. Even if it kills me, I've got your back. I'm your friend. I'm not afraid to die to rescue my friend. Friends, that is what Jesus did for you. He entwined his life with you. He united your life to his own. Your soul united to his soul. Your nature in union with him who is himself God and man together. He he wrapped himself up with you in friendship. That's what this table down here is about. Jesus being a friend of sinners. William Tyndale said it like this. He said, Christ is in you and you are in Christ knit together inseparably. You cannot be damned unless Christ is damned with you and Jesus cannot be saved unless you are saved with him. Jesus, a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Jesus, to whom we've been united. Jesus, who tangled his life together with ours in a knot that can never be severed. Your best friend, Jesus, forever the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks for Jesus. We give you thanks for this table that shows him to be a true friend of sinners like us. We commit to you now the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, Lord, that you would weave us together as the family of God. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.